Yesterday at lunch, I asked my kids uh, for a little help with this sermon, and I, I wonder what they would come up with for an illustration for standing firm. And so I, I asked them about this, and this is what Jeremiah came up with, and I think that this is helpful. He said, the Statue of Liberty, it stands firmly on a cement block all day and night, he said. And he's right. He's right. She stands on a foundation of 54 million pounds of concrete. And whether you go for coffee in the morning or whether you go out at night uh, for a night on the town, their Lady Liberty will be standing firm and making a statement about liberty. God wants his people to stand firm. And when we stand firm in the Lord, it makes a statement about the supremacy and strength of the Lord at work in us. We have something better than a measly 54 million pounds of concrete. We stand in Christ. When Paul talked about standing firm with the Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, and Thessalonians, so it was a popular thing for him, it was clear that standing firm is possible only in Christ. So it should be no surprise that Paul told the Philippians to stand firm thus in the Lord, in the Lord. And during these these next five weeks, We're going to unpack together different aspects of standing firm in the Lord uh, with the aim of actually standing firm. Sometimes I wonder if we, we lose sight of what preaching is for. It's calling us to something. It's declaring something, and it's calling us to something. And so the hope is that we obey. Uh, The hope is that we stand firm in Christ. So this is not just an opportunity for you to sit back and listen and agree in your heart. This is an opportunity for you to do what it is we study. God is calling you to do it. And I'd like to start with something that will weave through the coming weeks. It'll weave through the coming weeks. The indicative gives rise to the imperative. The indicative gives rise to the imperative. Now, what on earth does that mean? Indicative and imperative are linguistic terms. The indicative is a a verbal mood which states reality. A writer uses indicative to assert truth. Paul used the indicative when he said, but our citizenship is in heaven. That is a statement of objective truth or reality. So for our purposes... Indicative is absolute truth or reality. Then there's imperative, which is also a verbal mood, but the imperative is a command or plea, or you could say an appeal to do something. Verse 1 is an example, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Imperative is command. So how does the indicative, which is a statement of objective truth, give rise to the imperative, which is a command to do something? Well, simply put, truth demands an appropriate response. Truth demands an appropriate response. Here's an example. Grizzly bears are more violent than teddy bears. That's objective fact. And therefore, I urge you to hug a teddy bear instead of hugging a grizzly bear. Do you see the point? Can you see how the indicative gives rise to the imperative? The imperative is wise because the indicative is true. Here's another example. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Imperative. 
Here's the indicative. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The objective reality of God working in us gives rise to the command for us to work out our salvation. Do you understand? Have I lost anybody? If so, catch up later. Why is this important? Look at how Paul began verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, stand firm. Whenever you see the word therefore, you've got to go back. What did Paul just say? Because he, he's building upon what he just said. The imperative to stand firm is built upon Paul's previous indicatives. What he told them to do is appropriate because of what he told them was true. Are you following me? Here are a few examples that pertain to standing firm. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's indicative. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. That's imperative. Many walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. But our citizenship is in heaven. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. Jesus Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. The indicative gives rise to the imperative. From the beginning of this letter, Paul gave important, very important indicatives, which provide the springboard or the launch pad for the imperatives which are to follow. So you're going to get a lot more out of the coming weeks if you remember this simple thing that the indicative gives rise to the imperative. What God tells us to do is firmly anchored to what God tells us is true. Please listen carefully. In the coming weeks, we're going to hear a lot of imperatives. And the indicatives of the person and work of Jesus Christ make those imperatives beautifully relevant. Our union with Christ and the power of Christ uh, make the commands of Christ hopeful, beautiful, doable, and enjoyable for us. Before any of God's commands are going to be compelling for you, God himself has to be compelling for you. So we're going to take all that we've learned in Philippians about Jesus Christ so far, and we're going to understand that the objective reality of Jesus is the basis or the foundation of the command to stand firm. It is the indicative of our union with the Lord that provides us the capacity to obey his imperative to stand firm. So the point today is pretty simple. Jesus is the basis the foundation, the origin, the core of standing firm. And today we're going to work out three aspects of standing firm, our affection for one another, our unity, and our reconciliation with one another. So here we go, six things. Number one, Jesus is the basis of our deep affection for one another. Jesus is the basis of our deep affection for one another. Paul continued, Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What affection. My goodness, this is just overflowing with love. This entire letter is loaded with 
affection. Paul's affection for the Philippians, he builds them up and at the same time he challenges them and he uses these affectionate terms. Six times Paul used the term brothers. They were brothers and sisters in the Lord. Well, how, how did that happen? By grace alone, through faith alone, in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ alone, God adopted each of them. And uh, this week, I translated the first part of verse 1 myself, and then I found out that it was the exact translation of the modern English version, which goes like this. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brothers. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brothers. Beloved and longed-for are adjectives. And it's always tricky translating from Greek and other languages into English. We have to change some things around. But beloved and long for are adjectives that Paul was using to describe the Philippians, adjective that expressed his deep love and affection for them. Paul deeply loved them, really, really loved them. He longed for them. He longed for fellowship and relationship and time spent with them. He, you could say he sort of ached for them. Think back to chapter 1, verse 8, where Paul yearned for them with the affection of Christ Jesus. His affection was so deep, he called them his joy. They made him happy. Shouldn't Christ be our joy? Absolutely. Absolutely. And because Jesus is in his people, those who experience joy in Jesus also experience joy in Jesus' people, those with whom Jesus has per- have purchased. Um, so think back to chapter 1, verse 4, where Paul prayed with joy because of the Philippians' ongoing partnership in the gospel. Jesus was at work in the Philippians, which then acted to stir up the affection of Paul for the Philippians. Paul also called them his Stephanos might ring a bell to you, his wreath of victory, his crown. The names Stephanie and Stephen come from this Greek word. In the Olympic Games, they were awarded, uh, they awarded the champions a Stephanos. In in Olympia, it was an olive Stephanos to signify their victory. The, The Philippians were Paul's prized accomplishment wrought by grace. After all, he planted the church. His labor for Christ produced something beautiful and eternal, which acted as his victory wreath. He added, my beloved, again, just for good measure. He used it twice. So where where does this deep affection come from? What is the origin of this? Listen to what Dr. Dennis Johnson said. Christ's love for us ignites in us an affection for our brothers and sisters so intense that our absence from each other hurts. Hurts. So let me ask you a question. Do you long for us like that? When you're away for a bit, away from Jerusalem church, do you ache to reconnect with us? See, Jesus puts that kind of longing into people. Time with God's people is not a burden. It's not a bore. It's not a bother or an inconvenience. It's a delight for God's people who hunger for it, who hunger for Christ, who hunger for his people. Standing firm includes deep affection for God's people. Number two, 
Jesus is the basis of our standing firm together. Jesus is the basis of our standing firm together. This is, this is basically the big point for the next few weeks. Uh, Paul has been teaching them how to stand firm all throughout the book. If you've been tracking with the book, uh, you, you know what he's doing here. But in the next few weeks, we're going to find out a little bit more what that means, looking into things like rejoicing, uh, graciousness, killing anxiety, and thinking. So you don't want to miss the next few weeks. Stay tuned. You've got to be here because there's some great stuff coming that's going to be very practical to help you. So to stand firm is to persevere, to continue steadfastly, kind of like Lady Liberty. Uh, Dr. G. Walter Hansen wrote this, to stand firm in the Lord means that we remain strong and resolute in union with our Lord by exhibiting his lordship over our lives, by following our Lord's way to the cross, and by walking in unity with each other in our corporate union with our Lord. How about we think back to the kids' song? You might know it. When the rains came down and the floods came up, the wise man's house on the rock stood firm. Why? Because Christ was the rock who kept the house steady and strong. The man stands firm who builds his life upon the immovable Christ. That man stands firm. Now notice that the command is to stand firm thus in the Lord. What does in the Lord mean? And I think it means essentially two things. I might be missing some things, but two things. It means union with Christ. To be in the Lord is to be united to Christ by faith. Christ in you, you in Christ, then you stand firm. And secondly, it means the power of Christ To stand firm in the Lord means you stand firm when the power and ability of the Lord uphold you. He makes you stand firm. So please understand, there is no standing firm outside of oneness with Christ and outside of the power of Christ working in you. We all crash without him. When Paul said, stand firm thus in the Lord, he means stand firm in this way. I'd like to explain for you how to stand firm in the Lord. That's what he's getting at. Thus is an important little word for the coming weeks because it points us ahead to what Paul means by standing firm. In what way should we stand firm? Well, Paul's been telling us how to stand firm all along. Look at all the imperatives and all the indicatives of of this, and it will inform you how to do it. But... I think he was primarily pointing us ahead to the coming verses after verse 1. He's going to explain what that is. He'll, and we're going to unpack these imperatives in the coming weeks, so you've got to sit tight. But today, stand firm means affection, unity, and reconciliation. Affection, unity, and reconciliation, but more clarity on standing firm is coming. Folks, I want to make this easy, easy to understand. It's hard to be an authentic Christian in Lancaster County. This is like the Bible Belt of the North. Don't you think so? That's kind of how I... But it's still hard to be a legit Christian. We we get pressure inside and outside of the church to completely abandon Christ and to set our minds on earthly things. Yes, right here in Lancaster County. We cannot stand firm unless we are united to Christ by faith. 
and constantly drawing strength, constantly drawing power from that union with Christ. We cannot stand firm outside of that. It doesn't turn out well for those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. We saw that last time. We, as God's people, want to stand firm, firm, and we will in the Lord, in the Lord. Number three, Jesus is the basis of our agreement and unity. Look at verse two. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Well, who were Euodia and who were Syntyche? What was their problem and what was Paul's solution to their problem? Well, we don't really know much about these two people. This is the only place in scripture that they are mentioned. Uh, But first of all, we know they were saints in Philippi included in this letter. That tells us something. Second, they were women, as verse 3 mentions. Third, they were deeply committed Christians. Paul implied their union with Christ in verse 1. Verse 3 adds that their names are written in the book of life. And on top of that, fourth, they were faithful Christian leaders. They labored side by side in the gospel with Paul, Clement, and Paul's other fellow workers. That word labored in verse 3 is the same term for striving in chapter 1, verse 27. The only two places that that word appears in Scripture. And it means to struggle against opposition together with someone else. United, and you're struggling against this opposition that's coming at both of you. These ladies were prominent, faithful women, godly women, beautiful women of the church who at one time labored together in great unity, lockstep. And by the way, this is the only place in Scripture that Clement is mentioned by name, so we don't know much about him either. What problem did Euodia and Syntyche have? Well, they were two sisters in Christ who strongly disagreed with each other. Hence, Paul's entreaty for them to agree in the Lord. Think about this. Their rift was significant enough that Paul mentioned them by name in a group letter. Little intimidating? All right, that seems to suggest that their rift was actually causing more division in the church. We don't know the exact circumstances of this and exactly what was happening, but it it almost seems like, hey, this might have been rippling out into the church and, and, and maybe people are taking sides and things like this. And so I asked the question, is a dispute ever hurtful simply between the two people in dispute It so often ripples. It has effects outside. These two women were being selfish and self-centered. And people were likely choosing sides. And their disagreement was disturbing the unity. It was disturbing the effectiveness of this church. Keep in mind what Paul said earlier in chapter 1, verse 27. Standing firm in one spirit. One spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Their discord disrupted their one spirit and one mind, and it was sad. It was sad. There, was, uh, there were negative consequences for that. But in the middle of this, Paul didn't take sides. You'll see that. He entreated both of these women. He didn't single one of them out. He entreated them both in an attempt to restore unity. Sometimes champions of the faith disagree. They disagree about important things, which causes friction in the church. Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli agreed on much critical doctrine of Scripture, much. They had much 
uh, much in, in common. But they hotly disagreed on the Lord's Supper. I mean, whew, brutal, brutal on the Lord's Supper to the point that Luther said, quote, we are not of the same spirit, end quote. Discord is reality, but it's never a good thing, and it's always sad. Disagreements within the church can weaken affection and unity and distract from the glory and supremacy of Christ. Disagreements are threats. Paul pleaded, pleaded with Euodia and Syntyche to agree, phroneo, agree. This is the eighth time Paul has used phroneo in Philippians, and he'll use it twice more in verse 10. He used it more than joy, and and, and we kind of know Philippians as being the joy. No, he used this thinking and agreement more than joy, a lot more. Phroneo means to think a certain way or to be of the same mind. Paul is making a strong point that Christians should agree or have one unified mind in Christ, which not only glorifies God, but it creates joy and peace in a local church. And some of you may have been part of a church that just couldn't agree. And you know how painful that can be. You know. You might have the scars to prove it. Back in Philippians 2, verse 2, Paul said, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Three verses later, he added, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The the basis for agreement is not hobbies. It's not tastes. It's not ethnicity. It's not socioeconomic status. Jesus Christ is the basis of our true agreement and unity. We are one in him. Jesus takes his people, all of these diverse and weird and ethnic and just all of this, these people, and he unites them around his own lordship. He takes them as his own. He rules them. He masters them. And therein, in himself, he unites them together as one. Disharmony was the problem. In this church, between these two many, these two women, what was the solution then? Number four, Jesus is the basis of our reconciliation. Let me give you the key to their solution. Paul said, "I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord." There it is again, in the Lord. The solution begins with union with Christ and the power He provides. The believer, Euodia and Syntyche were each united to Christ by faith and one with him, one with each other as well, both indwelled by the Holy Spirit, both sisters in the family of God, both citizens of heaven, both co-workers in the gospel. Therefore, this division that they're having is terrible, terrible. All division within the family of God is terrible. Oh, the impact that healing and reconciliation would have in the lives of these women and in the life of the church. Avoiding each other wouldn't fix it. Roman counseling wouldn't fix it. Changing churches wouldn't fix it. A cage match wouldn't fix it. The only hope of reconciliation for these two women was in the Lord. 
Now, there, of course, are situations where one person is so ready to reconcile, so spirit-filled, so please, let's work this out. I want to be reconciled. And then the other person just isn't there. And they refuse to go there. That happens. That happens. That's real. But imagine if both people humbly pursue agreement and reconciliation in the Lord in order to magnify God's name, in order to show the greatness of his forgiveness and show the greatness of his grace. Now, maybe agreement on that one issue, maybe that won't come in this life. Maybe, maybe resolution won't come. But even so, they can find agreement in Jesus and carry on in gospel unity and mission. Jesus can make that type of thing happen. I wish we all were on the same page with theology. Quite frankly, it's hard sometimes when we're not. But I think in diversity in certain areas, you reject Jesus Christ as Lord, you reject Jesus Christ as the Son of God, I'm sorry you're not a Christian, you're not with us. No, I'm not sorry. That's just how it is. You're not one of us. Baptism. Let's talk. Lord's Supper. Let's talk. Because I think we can love each other and see Christ, and yes, they're important. Yes, we should seek for for agreement, but on this side, it's not going to come, my friends. Jesus will set us straight. We should strive, but Jesus will set us straight. I, I don't think we need agreement on everything. On the essentials, yeah. And then we move ahead on gospel mission. And I know denomination, it all gets fuzzy. I know that. I know that. But Jesus is what holds us together, and just let's prioritize him. What was Paul's action plan in this situation? Number five, Jesus is the basis of our call to help one another heal. First, understand Paul's urgent plea for the two women to work it out. Agree in the Lord. Agree in the Lord. Please, please, would you just agree in the Lord? That is his heart. That was for them to do. That, that was on their shoulders. They needed to work it out. But second, notice, Paul was entreating them. He was acknowledging the elephant in the room, and he was getting involved. He was making it his business. He wrote this, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul entreated them, and he also asked another man to get involved the word translated true companion is suzagos, which means co-yoked or figuratively colleague, a colleague. And so scholars have suggested who Paul might have meant, but we don't know for sure. It's just conjecture. Uh, some scholars suggest that suzagos was actually the man's name uh, because he is naming names here. And, and I like that possibility, but I'm not sure. And so whatever Paul's exact meaning, the Philippians knew who this guy was. They knew this man, and this man was a trusted servant of Christ. He was a co-worker in the gospel, and, and he had wisdom, and he had experience that he could offer these women to help them work through it. Please understand what Paul did and how it applies to us today. Paul looked for mediation within the church. 
Mediation that he knew would be anchored to God's word and wisdom and will. I I find it perplexing and quite frankly troublesome that so many Christians seek mediation or counseling from secular and godless sources. Many run to the so-called experts who are not filled with the Spirit of God. They disregard and attack God's Word and base their counsel exclusively on worldly wisdom. That's disastrous. Absolutely disastrous. I cannot understand why Christians would do this. It doesn't matter what modern-day psychology says. There is only one thing that truly changes people from the inside out, God's grace through the gospel, period. We don't need men like Skinner, Freud, Pavlov, Kinsey, James giving us counsel. What are they going to offer us? Modern day psychology is built upon the backs of depraved men who have rejected God, discredited sacred scripture, and introduced destructive, perverted, and demented thinking into the counseling process. And if you're like, whoa, this is way too radical, I just challenge you, find for me one devout Christian who believed in the authority of the scripture who made a contribution to modern day psychology. Find it. I'd love to know who that person is. It's godless. Too many Christians are in bed with modern day psychology. They need to repent. They need to turn to the gospel of power which actually helps people. Paul didn't tell Euodia and Syntyche to find a Roman philosopher or counselor or lawyer to give help to them. He looked to the power of Christ and he called upon a wise and trusted brother to get involved. More Christians need to look for help in places like CCEF or the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors or devout Christian counselors that build their entire approach upon the gospel. Those are the people who, who, who have it that can help. Because God empowers their counsel. God is in the counsel that they're giving. That's where the power is. Now, Christians struggle with deep emotional issues and conflicts. And there is, and this is what I I want the point to get home, there is incredible God-centered and gospel-aligned research and counsel available to help those people through a myriad of issues. It's out there, but, but it all begins with, with this belief in our hearts that Christ, Jesus Christ, is sovereign and preeminent and that Scripture alone has the answers for healing and reconciliation because Jesus is the basis of our agreement and unity. He's the basis of our reconciliation. He's the basis of our call to help one another. The church The church is a force, a powerful force for reconciliation because the power of God's truth is in it. The spirit of God is in it. The church is the force. Now, if I haven't already trampled on your toes, uh, I want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood here. I do believe science offers us some very helpful research. Some issues we face are physiological, they're biological problems that can inform our counseling from a biblical basis. But we must be careful with that. We must be discerning from Scripture. So I'm not throwing the beautiful baby of science out with the bathwater. I'm not doing that. But I do think we have put way too much trust in science and way too little trust 
in the power of the gospel to heal and to comfort and to provide for God's people what they need. So my question, if if this is coming at you, is do you actually believe that Jesus is the basis of true healing? Do you believe that it is Jesus who heals? Can worldly wisdom do what Jesus can do? Let me just say this. Worldly wisdom is fraudulent. It lies to you. And so many people, even inside the church, have completely swallowed the pill. We must help one another focus on the truth of God, which is supreme and eternally helpful. Because what, what if a, a little few tips and things that could help us in this life, but is not eternally focused, what's that going to get you? Only so far, and then eternity? I want counsel that is anchored in who I am 12 billion years from now. Now, not every Christian is gifted nor competent to counsel in every circumstance. Notice Paul called on one specific man to help Euodia and Syntyche. So not every Christian is competent to counsel. Yet within the family of God are enough people with enough wisdom to help us through life's issues because the Holy Spirit raises up those people to be a blessing to the church. The church has the resources. So if you're struggling with something very deep and you've had a secular and godless counselor up until this point, would you talk to me? Because I would be glad to send you way too much information for you to be able to process of great people that you can go to and get solid, awesome, biblical, spirit-filled wisdom and help and counsel. Do you have a conflict with another believer? Maybe it's been going on for a while. Maybe both of you just haven't been willing to confront that and, and deal with it head on and be healed. Would you consider Paul's wisdom here? Humble yourself. Look for reconciliation in the Lord and seek out spirit-filled, mature, wise, and gospel-saturated brothers and sisters to come alongside of you and to help you work through your conflict. Another application of this is that our church has implemented considerable changes over the past five years. We plan on implementing more changes that we believe... Glorify God, are guided by word and spirit, help us accomplish our mission more effectively, and position us to be a healthier and more dynamic church in the future. Because our our focus is on future gospel fruit, not on what has happened in the past. Past fruit. So it's probable that as we go through different changes at this church, you're going to disagree with some things. That's probable. If we all agree on everything, a miracle has happened. That would be great, but... Uh, I don't have high hopes of that. That's natural to have disagreements. It's natural, and I think it's okay. You see, we don't need perfect agreement all across the board on every issue of ministry here at the church. We, we don't need perfect uh, agreement to be a loving church, an understanding church, a unified church, an effective gospel-centered church. But we must have this. We must have the mind of Christ. That I do know. We must do everything in our power to preserve and protect and, when necessary, restore unity. If we're moving too fast and a bunch of people are like, man, I, I just am so uncomfortable, then maybe those who are moving fast need to bring it back a little bit in order to show love for this group over here. We just have to work it out together. Do you know what I'm saying? One mind, one spirit. Christ is the goal. We move ahead, and he will help us unify 
Here's the last point I want you to see, number six. Jesus is the basis of our eternal citizenship. Paul mentions names in the book of life in verse three, and the word for book will sound familiar to you, biblos. Does that sound familiar? Bible comes from this word. Biblos doesn't refer simply to sacred scripture. It, it can be a scroll, it can be a book, it could be even a record of names. The book of life is an Old and New Testament concept. The book of life is a role, the role of heaven. Names are in that book. In fact, every single child of God, past, present, and future, has their name written in that book. Revelation 20 verse 15 says that if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we also know that there are names that are not written in that book. They will not be in that book. And Revelation 13, 5, and I ask you to think very carefully about this, teaches that the names were written in the book of life, quote, before the foundation of the world, which certainly, without a shadow of a doubt, suggests predestination, election, and God's sovereign grace in salvation. See, Jesus is the basis of our eternal citizenship. Jesus is the basis, not anything that man has done or not anything that man has not done. The book of life is a book of sovereign grace. The book of life is a book of God's favor. The book of life is a book of God's kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. And so interestingly, Paul was writing to people whose names were written in the civic register of Rome. But he pointed them beyond that book to a superior book and an eternally important book, the book of life. Euodia's name was right there with Syntyche's name. Paul's name was there. Timothy's, Epaphroditus's, Clement's, and the rest of the gospel workers' names were there. You see, what Paul was doing, he was appealing to their heavenly identity and eternal unity in Christ in order to restore their earthly unity to reflect their heavenly unity. Any disagreement, any argument, any resentment, any division threatens the glorious unity that is ours in Christ and that is ours in heaven. We must strive to persevere, strive to preserve, strive to protect our unity. So for today, zero in on a few things. One, Jesus is the basis of standing firm. You got that. That's going to make a big difference in the coming weeks. He is our solid rock to stand on. And number two, standing firm includes having great affection for one another, working together to, to preserve and protect the unity which is rightfully ours in Christ and when necessary, reconciling with each other in the Lord. If we are to stand firm, it will be in the Lord. And it will include deep affection. It will include widespread unity. And it will include, when necessary, humble reconciliation. So there is the beginning of your call to action. It's going to build over the next few weeks. You have listened. Hopefully you have agreed. And now it is time for you to do it. Now it's time for you to put it into practice. We do it in the Lord alone And so many exciting things are coming. Please be sure that you're here because I think you're going to be built up and encouraged by it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is so precious and it does challenge us in our 
2017 mind, American mind. Uh, God, I want to believe in Scripture, and I believe my brothers and sisters here want to believe in it too and want to delight in it. And so, God, would you bring us unity in the Lord? If there is any division among us, God, you are entreating us to agree in the Lord, and I pray that you bring it. God, with changes that come, we're, we're going to be looking at the congregational meeting at a, a uh, building renovation project. That's a lot of money. I wonder if we will agree in the Lord. So I'm praying right now that your Holy Spirit would bring agreement in whatever way it, it goes. Just bring us agreement. Bring us unity. Put us on the same page, all for the glory of Christ, to better carry out our mission because you are calling us to something great and we want the gospel to shine. And so what decisions do we need to make here uh, to, to launch us in shining for Christ even more? Launching and sharing the gospel with more people and dis- making more disciples for your glory. God, bring us unity. Bring reconciliation to any relationships here today that, uh, that, that maybe someone was convicted. Man, I got this person that is just it's not good. God, would you show your power in that to bring reconciliation. We love you, God. We, we want to do what you want us to do. So help us to stand firm in Jesus Christ. All for his fame and glory, we pray.